Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. And all of a sudden, people are talking, Olympics, Olympics, and he's going, what is this thing? Mesdames et messieurs. The greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am in candy coma. That's right. It's the day after Halloween, so we are stuffed to the gills with energy. I would call it energy. Let's look on the bright side. Energy and calcium and maybe protein if you had uh, candy with peanuts in it, right? I just call it sugar rush. Okay. That too. But... It's been fun. If you dressed up like an Olympian or your favorite Olympic mascot, send us a picture. Tweet at us or post it in our Facebook page or Facebook group. We would love to see what you came up with. I would love it if somebody dressed up as a little Suharang. Nobody would know what that is, but wouldn't it be adorable? Oh, oh! I'm just going to stand sideways and turn my head and be Kobe. (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot. And stick my foot out. Yeah, I forgot about the foot. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, for us, it's time for another Olympic Fever Book Club meeting. We are so excited to have Book Club Claire back on the podcast. We are talking about our latest book club selection. This time we read Running for My Life, One Lost Boy's Journey from the Killing Fields of Sudan to the Olympic Games by Lopez Lamont, who is a long-distance runner. Claire, this was a great pick. Thank you. And I must say, it is a joy to hear from both of you again. How are you guys? We're okay. We're excited to see you. I know. It's so nice to have you back. I'm excited. It, it's been, what, at, beginning of August, I think? Was yeah, it was a while. Yeah, yeah. We've been reading this one for a while. Yeah, I read this back in August. And like, I was sitting on a beach because I live right by Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I'm going to take the book with me and start it. And then I couldn't put it down. And I finished it in about 36 hours. Wow. I was engrossed. I mean, compared to another book that I was reading about the Olympics, which was so dry and boring, this was just a pleasure to read. This was a quick read. Yeah. It was a a hard read. read. 
our first question for you two is um, the title of the book is called Running for My Life. And why do you think that title was chosen for this book? Uh, well, obviously, he had to run around the whole freaking refugee camp in Kenya to, like, be able to do anything. And he, well, he, well, let's even back that up first. He got nabbed from church by uh, the, I don't know what you want to call them, Sudanese soldiers. The People's Liberation Army. Okay. So they kidnapped him and a bunch of kids from church and then uh, held them and they were going to train them to become soldiers. And some magical miracle, I would say, Lopez got had some friends, which he called angels because they kind of like helped him run away, literally run away from the soldiers and saved his life. And they took him to a refugee camp in Kenya where then he never saw them again. And so he literally crazy. had to run for days. It was crazy how many days he ran to get away from the the army to the refugee camp. And how they how they kept going in the right direction, that also flummoxed me. Because he was like, what, six years old or so? It's crazy. Yeah. But they weren't going in the right direction. He thought, or maybe that he just didn't realize where they were going. Because he said, oh, we didn't end up back in my village. We ended up at the Kenyan border. Where they were picked up by the UN soldiers. So the, the, the older boys seemed to have an idea of where they were going. Because they knew they couldn't stay in Sudan. They knew they had to get to yes. the refugee camp or else they were going to get taken again. So yeah, running for his life literally, but running keeps appearing. So I, I enjoyed how, you know, he's doing life. He wants to play soccer, but they're like, no, you need to do this <laughs> running around the camp in order to play because there's so many boys. And when he gets to America, people realize, man, this kid is awesome. And he just keeps going. And I thought that the title has so many layers and I thought that was a great pick to, you know, attract people to it and to also show them, you know, this is, this was literal, but it's also something that I'm still doing at this point. What were the, some of the more surprising facts of the book? The one thing I, I wanted more from the beginning was, and I realized he was supposed to be six, but I wanted more of the facts of the political situation. I didn't feel like I came away from the book knowing more about the Sudan and the civil war and the conflict in general. So I had to kind of go back elsewhere and get the context of that. And that, I mean, I realized that's not what the purpose of the book was, but I would have liked more because I think the story would have had a little more resonance with more context. Jill? Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with Allison on that. There, I don't know a ton about the situation in Sudan, and I know that there are lost boys in different pockets around the United States who got, who came out, but knowing, weren't, like, he had, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he have siblings who were not kidnapped that same day? He still had siblings correct. back at home, so how was, you know... It just seemed, it all seemed very random. And I'm sure to a six-year-old, everything was very random. And you don't really know what's going on and can't process it. And then all of a sudden, you're like, well, here I am in this refugee camp and I got to go run a whole marathon before I can come and play soccer and maybe I'll eat today. 
and that just becomes your, your normal way of life. And maybe it's hard to step back and be able to put that into a bigger context. I mean, I think it was really great that he had a good ghostwriter to work with, but I think that the writer um, may have been more helpful in providing more context. But it also allows us to research. And I think yeah. that's what Lamont may wants people to do. He wants people to look into it more and, and see the sources that are, you know, because honestly, I don't know that much about Sudan. I didn't even know that South Sudan became a country only, what, seven years ago in 2011. I didn't know that. And so through this book, I'm able to get so much more information about the situation in Sudan and how bad it had been. It it, it kept going for 20 years yeah. before South yeah. Sudan finally became its own independent country. And even then, they had a five-year civil war that only ended like in August, I want to say. Yeah. They had a, a peace arms deal that happened. And so, so much has happened that we don't know about in America. And it's something right. we should. Right. Absolutely. And you think about like a, a whole generation's grown up only knowing war. And what is it like for them to like give up the way of life that they know? Not necessarily that it's a good life to have, but like signing a peace treaty means like, oh my gosh, my entire life and way of thinking has to change. So here we go. What What's going to happen? Same with kind of Lopez, where he gets plucked from a church and then all of a sudden his way of life and everything he knew is totally out the window. And then yeah. when he gets plucked from the refugee camp and sent to America, it's the same thing. I mean, he's been, his entire world has been turned upside down several times in his life. Yeah, which which is amazing, like having supportive American parents who helped him transition and believed in him. I would imagine, I mean, I felt bad for the kids in the book who were too old to get placed, like they got to come to America, but they were too old to get placed with families. So then they were kind of stuck trying to wing it on their own. And that had to be so rough. And And of course, like, it just means like the the opportunities that are open to you just that door doesn't open very much and it it shut almost completely back in 20 or in 2001 with 911 because right. all of the rules changed and lemong barely made it right and they closed it down and only allowed a few after that and it's just it's that i thought that was so sad that you know they were being so open they open their doors for these kids to come and be adopted. And all of a sudden, 9-11 happens and boom, it's like we can't go through this because it's just too open and we have to be more secure. And I can understand all the sides of it, I guess. But to see how many boys were getting excited and ready to come and then to suddenly tell them you can't. Yeah. And just the conditions of the camp just sound so horrific that like I, I'm not sure I can fathom it and how people live there for decades just because they got no place to go. And even if the war is over, I, I would love to know like if the war is over now, is there a plan for them to go back at all? Or do they want to go back, but they can't really stay in Kenya and do you want to stay in this 
living situation. I don't know. I thought it was surprising how much Kenya had to do with it. I didn't realize that the UN camp was even in Kenya, that he had to cross into Kenya. And it's it's interesting to have just this giant camp run by the UN, but it's not based in Sudan at all. And so a lot of his life was spent in Kenya. He spent he spent more time speaking Swahili than he right. did his own language. And I, I just, I have you ever heard him talk? I watched the YouTube okay. videos. Yes, I did too. And yeah. he, he, even now, his American accent really comes through because he's been here for so long now. He's, he knows so many languages. It's just amazing. And I, I think that having that Kenyan connection is really interesting. And he has a lot of negatives with Kenya because when he tried to bring his brothers back, there was that one lady at the passport office that would just refuse to give him anything. Oh, that made me so mad. (laughs) But I, I know that this whole thing comes from his being stolen at age six. Is there another really interesting part of the book after he comes to America that really struck you? Because I know for me, it was the fact that he didn't want to get sent back. So he just kept saying yes to everything. Do you want this? Yes. Do you want this? Yes. And the fact that he was willing to admit it later and made his parents cry because they, they realized that they thought he thought that they were going to send him back. And that wasn't the case. Was there anything right. else post America that, that you, that struck you? Well, I was very struck when he actually did go back when he went back to meet or, or re-meet his parents. And my favorite reporter, Mary Carrillo, makes a cameo <laughs> and proves why I can't stand her when she surprises the mother with him. Oh, that made me so mad. <laughs> that made me so mad. I was like, how could you do that? And I love, she's like, well, what are you feeling right now? And I wanted to say, Mary, I feel like punching you in the face. How could you do this? This woman has not seen her son for, at that point, I think it was 12 years. And she springs him on him? I was a little upset. The entire process of of him going back to Sudan and seeing his family and the fact that he kept, you know, looking at his watch he had become so Americanized yeah, that he that was, was the concept of time. I was fascinated by that. That even, what would you say, two years? That's not a lot of time. But yet he was perfectly ingrained in American time. And his family's just, you know, we keep partying until the food's gone. And that's how it is. And right. he was so not used to that. And I, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, that that was interesting how much he had changed. You know what else I I was very curious about? was that he wanted to study hotel management and hospitality. And I kind of wanted to know more about that and whether or not that's still part of his plan once he retires from racing. Because he's still racing. He has a long career. He's had a long career, and he's still going. He's going to try for 2020, I believe. And it'd be interesting to see, because he did end up getting his college degree, which that was another amazing thing, that he could come to America, speak no English, managed to work his butt off, I think, more so than it felt like in the book. I know that, like, his parents were, his American parents were 
so supportive and helped him get there. But I can't, I, I couldn't quite understand and maybe he couldn't even explain how hard it was to like be thrown into another culture. You have to learn the language. Your education has got to be next to nothing from what he did learn. And, you know, like from writing stuff on the ground in a, with a stick to getting paper and pens and computers, that's what a shift. Yeah, I definitely wanted more self-reflection throughout. I felt like it was all too like, oh, I've never seen a flush toilet before. Ha ha ha. It was a little too superficial in that sense. And maybe it's just because he still is pretty young. You know, he's not a parent himself yet. He hasn't moved past his running career. So I almost wonder what this book would be like if he wrote it again 20 years from now. Or even or now. If, right, or even now, because that was, you know, right there. Or if he had written it, say, with his American parents, like what their view of the story would have been. And how much they knew of his original story or when they found out about his past. You know, how long did it take for him to explain that all in a way that, like, as he's learning English to figure out how to communicate that. Well, I have a question based on what you just said, Allison. I didn't really think about the ghostwriter as much in the story as because I'm an author, so I don't tend to think of somebody else writing like my story. Mm -hmm. I would think I'm going to write my story. So I, I read this in kind of his voice and I found it to be very easy to do, but how do you think compared to, let's say the boys in the boat, which was our last book club book. Mm -hmm. How did you think he presented his information compared to what the author of the boys in the boat presented his information? Well, that's interesting. It's that a good question because in the boys in the boat, I felt like we were getting another layer. We were looking at it from a distance. We were looking at it from a more complete picture because we knew what happened 50 years after the events and were, were able to contextualize it. Whereas this was very much, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And the implications, we don't even know yet, probably, what the implications of these events on the greater picture would will be. And I wonder how long it took... Uh, Lopez and his co-author to write his book versus how long the boys in the boat took because that seemed to take a long time I almost think that this book was kind of a let's write this quick while the iron is hot and make some money yes but tell the story you know there's there's the let's make some money aspect of it let's tell your story to get this out there because it's very important to get that story out there as much and as quickly as possible because people are dying. And I think the first person perspective is also makes it a different book as well. Very because true. you're only dealing with, you know, Lopez himself only knows his story. Maybe he can't contextualize what's necessarily going on in the rest of it, especially when you're six years old and you know, you know, your village and all of a, all of a sudden you see you're you're hanging out with soldiers and maybe he doesn't even know that war is going on. I don't know. 
right? And that's not his profession. He's not a historian. He's mm-hmm. not a politician. So it, it's just telling his story, which is very powerful in and of itself, but different purpose almost. Definitely. And this was published in 2012. So it was right before the start of the London Olympics. So I don't think London was even mentioned in the book, mm-hmm. only the Beijing Olympics, which was his first. And he wanted, I know that, you know, this was something where he wanted to make sure that people heard his story while he was popular. You said it, striking while the iron's hot. And so there is stuff that might have been missing had it been published maybe a year later. Not even stuff from the 2012 Olympics, but things from his life if they had taken it easy. I know that there's a lot of Olympians that release books either prior to or immediately following Olympics. And it's probably along those lines, but I think there is there is a different layer to it because, I mean, it's dedicated to the people of Sudan and the children yeah. who have been lost. So there there is a deeper meaning than just, hey, this is my life and this is how I became a super amazing athlete of some kind. There mm-hmm. There is more to it, but you're right. It, it is not as historical, not setting us into a place, but seeing it through his eyes. Which would be interesting that the next time we do an athlete biography like this or an autobiography to compare them and see if this is just the way that this genre is. And maybe that's, you know, you go in with a different expectation because of that. Very true. When it comes to Lamont's actual races, how did his account in the book compare with how you usually watch races. Like I actually went back onto YouTube and I found his 2007 national championship race and comparing it to what he said in the book was very accurate. But there were other races that I looked at that his thought process was way different than what the YouTube video was showing me. What did you think about his accounts of the races? Well, this was really funny because we were reading this right when we were speaking to Dawn Harper and she was taking us through step-by-step her races and so many things that had happened. So that was very interesting in that I have never thought of track races in other, in any detailed way. I was never a runner. I'd never really had running friends. So it's not like I sat and watched a lot of track races. So just thinking about them other than, oh, that person went really fast was, was interesting. I was surprised at how much jostling and not fighting, but like, like the pulling of the shirt, like, huh? Like that shouldn't be part of a race. Kind of the fighting with the upper body instead of using just your legs to win. That was kind of surprising to me. I have noticed that when I watch distance racing, I used to think these are so boring. Even NBC cuts to commercial in the middle of the 10,000 meter. I digress. It's interesting to see how much jostling actually takes place during that race. You don't have lanes. You are Mm -hmm. right neck and neck. You will trip. You will fall. Someone can push you out of the way and maybe be disqualified if somebody sees it. It's just, it's incredible I I get so entranced by distance races. I set my schedule to marathons now so that I can watch. And I, I love how 
competitive they get and how worked up they can get about about certain things and and watching their race strategies and now i'm just sounding like a total geek sorry no Um, but it's true like and understand i think i understood a little bit more of race strategy because of the one race where he went out way too fast mm -hmm. and almost didn't have enough in the tank and that's really interesting to understand as well you know i blame the the commentators of middle distance riding a little bit because I didn't know anything about short track speed skating. And in short track speed skating, the, the people who are discussing it are constantly talking about the strategy and the jostling and how you move with, uh, with the other competitors. And when I watch a middle distance race, they don't tell me any of that. Right. Yeah. Like when do you move from the inside to the outside? Is it worth going into that outside lane to get around somebody, you know, because you're adding more. Do you? Oh, well, I guess I got to watch better. Well, I have, I have NBC sports gold. I have the track pass. So the streaming that they have for the diamond league races is a different commentator than the NBC guys. Uh, That makes a big difference. He knows his stuff. British accent, fantastic. He is great. And sometimes they have other people that he can talk to, but usually he's by himself. So I, I love what he says. And sometimes sometimes the NBC guys, too, they say, oh, you know, I think they got out too early or they're not taking the pace enough and they're not chasing the rabbits. And you, you can hear it, but sometimes we just think, oh, 10,000 meters, and then you just sit and stare at them for however long it takes. It, it's it, The races are something that I've take it's taken some time for me to get used to but hearing it in this book helps me to see okay there is really a strategy to this you don't don't just go run and he he even learned that when he started his cross-country career yeah um, yeah that was interesting he had to learn even though he could run he had to learn how to run competitively and he had great coaches to to help him with that Clearly. I did love when he was like, I got to do my daily run. How far can I go? Where do you want to go? I need to go this far. And they're like, no, you don't. He's <laughs> like, yeah, I got to do a marathon every day. Did you say 30 or 13? <laughs> I know. Oh, and then I don't 30. Know, I loved how the, uh, the parents didn't know the conversion from oh, kilometer right. smiles. I was like, oh, this again. We're so American with that sometimes. I, I think I was really surprised because... I think the U.S. championships took place in June, and I think I had this book on my radar at that point. And lo and behold, LeVong, who had been winning the mile, he won the 10,000 meters. And I was blown away by that because I I knew that I was maybe going to read this story and to see that he's still successful. He's still competing at a high level and he's doing it in all varieties of lengths is truly remarkable and it shows it shows a lot about his athleticism that he's able to transition from one to the other bit of a throwback you know i know athletes 40 years ago used to do that they would run multiple races or they would switch at different points in their career and you just don't see that as much from american runners anymore they they really specialize yes that's kind of I like that kind of story. Me too. And that's why I'm kind of pulling for him to keep, to continue competing. I want to see him keep racing. And um, I watched a documentary uh, called Breaking Two. And it was about 
Kipchoge and uh, Elliot Kipchoge and a couple other marathon racers trying to break two hours. And who was one of the pace setters? I looked and it's Lopez Lamog. Wow. <laughs> I got so excited just by seeing him there and, you know, to recognize him and seeing that he's still helping out and, and racing all these cool things. And and he's not only racing, he's also promoting his own charity, his foundation, the Four South Sudan Foundation. What I really loved and thought was smart that he's partner partnering with somebody and realized he didn't need to reinvent the wheel and that he could actually make more of an impact by working with somebody who knows how to do that stuff. What it seems is that it's just well thought out in trying to provide some basic necessities to, you know, it's simple how water or improving the water quality frees up so much of your time to do other stuff in life, like go to school or, you know, cook or farm. But it's that, that I really enjoyed. One of the people from his village, when he first went, she brought, she said, my daughter's sick. And he said, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And he, she said, you came from America, so you must have medicine. And the fact that that just broke his heart and she did not get it, that he didn't come for medicine like she assumed. And she, he did not want that to happen again. So not only water, medicine, education, mm -hmm. and you know, proper nutrition, those are things that we take for granted. We have all those things and, and they don't. It's such a simple thing to do that Lamong is, is using his resources and his pull to bring in the money and, and the, the resources to help the people in South Sudan. He, he doesn't leave them behind. He's, he's still willing to go out and help them. And I, I love that. Yeah. I think that's so, so great. And he's still doing it. I mean, yes, this book was six years ago, but I've seen current information about him continuing it. Now, and here's, here's going to be my soapbox. Nobody in this world today should not have clean water to drink. I mean, that is ridiculous. It's just, that, see, I get angry at big things too, not just Mary Carrillo. I'm going to have to watch a Mary Carrillo segment with you in my ear because <laughs> that I just, I really want to. I want to hear your snide remarks. I'll, I'll watch it with you. Just call me and I will snide <laughs> remark Mary Carrillo any time of day because she makes me so mad. Awesome. All right. Two more questions to kind of wrap this yeah. up. Yeah. Family is a really important theme in this book, in the story, but not necessarily in the traditional way. So how do you think all of the different family types influenced him as he was going through his life? First, you would think of his mother and father, his natural parents. You'd also think of, of the Rogers, uh, Rob and Barbara. But I would also include the angels, the three angels that he he doesn't even know their names, but they came, they got him out, and then they disappeared. I think that was huge. You know, that that family aspect of kind of his brothers. Right. And right. the brothers, and the brothers in the of camp. the camp. And the brothers in the camp. Yep. And then his Sudanese brothers when he came to New York, you know, that extended family and kind of his track family is Right. I was going to say well. his coaches. Yeah. Even the captain of his cross-country team, when he couldn't get his locker oh, right. open, so he was yeah. always late for class, his name's Tom, he's like, I I'll help you. I'll come to your locker. I'll help you open it so that he could get there on time. That's just you know, all these positive influences. Yes, he's had, very, he's had negatives, 
but so many po- people are positively influencing his life to spur him to continue what he's doing and, and to graduate from college. I mean, his, his mother here in the United States, you are going to get an education. She didn't care about the, the running idea. She wanted him to graduate college. And eventually he said it's the high point of his life. And as an educator, it brings a little tear to my eye. (laughs) It's like, she succeeded. You did well. (laughs) I, I love that. I think so many, there's so much good family qualities in all these people final question favorite part of the book i have mine and as soon as i read this i said this is awesome okay go ahead you you go yeah you sure okay yeah my favorite part was when he was at the kenyan refugee camp and all of a sudden people are talking olympics olympics and he's going what is this thing and so all the boys let's go let's go so they go to this house that has this tiny black and white tv and he has to pay to watch the television with all these boys on the floor and who pops up but the 400 meters and michael johnson from 2000 in sydney and they're watching the race and they're cheering and his first experience seeing that running can be something and maybe making that suddenly a priority and i just remember you know everybody has an experience with the olympics like that where they didn't really realize the olympics were a thing and then all of a sudden they sit down they watch it and their eyes are open oh this is awesome and i i get a little worked up about it because i i just i love the olympics so much for for those reasons and how it connects so many people from all over the world and just brings so much joy to them and it, it it connects us all and i i love that and i love that he was able to to get that in a little tiny house with a black and white tv in kenya and suddenly he's in the olympics um eight years later yeah which is amazing that you can that that some people can capture that dream and make it happen i mean you would think that all the odds are against him when he says oh i'm going to be in the olympics how how can a kid from a refugee camp get to the Olympics and maybe part of that naivete helped him along, but just like the whole turn of events where he gets plucked from the refugee camp, just not by magic, but I was just, I was amazed that he was able to write an essay in English, which he didn't know and have that be the, the thing that ultimately changes his life trajectory. You know, one of the the favorite parts for me was also uh, when he was chosen to be the flag bearer for Beijing 2008. And I think it, it also, part of it is maybe his, his lack of self-realization, maybe. Like, I'm not sure, throughout the book, I'm not sure he knows how special he is. And he's like, hey, I get chosen. And then, like, the president's pulling me aside. The president's pulling me aside. Like, what is this? But just that the fact that he's been able to constantly keep that who he is and where he's from as a big part of his life and make sure that that's recognized wherever he goes. And I know I will watch the refugee team, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that they are going to have a refugee team in Tokyo. Yes. I will definitely watch them with, more grounding having read this story 
you know, because these are kids who have been in refugee camps just like the one Lopez Lamang was in Kenya that went through all of these that have struggled and probably did see the Olympics for the first time on some small little black and white TV running off a car battery. And they want to be there more than anything else. And that hope and that dream that they're bringing to people is really awe-inspiring. I, I do have to say that I did, I appreciated how he kept bringing God back and saying, you know, that God's hand is in this. He's leading me. He has a plan for me. And, you know, he talks about his angels and he never lets, he never lets God go. And he always trusts him, even when it's the darkest hours. And he never loses that throughout the whole book. And I appreciated that um, from where I come from. It's it's wonderful to see that flow through in the way that it did. Right. And how faith can can keep you going. Absolutely. And I know for the most part, it, it in the past couple of months, it's kept me going. So I've really latched on to that. And inspired him to give back. Yes. You know, it's not, I am so blessed. It's, I've been given the opportunity to share this and and bring something to other people that I loved about that aspect of the story, that it was all about what can I do now with this platform and with this opportunity. He knows people are still suffering and he wants to, he don't, he doesn't want them to suffer like he did. No. It's, it's great. So if you have not had a chance to read this yet, I highly recommend listeners because I never get to talk to the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that you do. Like I said, it doesn't take long to read this book. It's a fast. I gave it to my mom and she's a fast reader and she read it in lickety split time. So Allison and Jill, thank you for reading it. And uh, we don't have a new book picked out, do we? No, but we are. We have asked our asked the listeners for genres right now. Oh, wow. History of a particular Olympics. That is winning. Yeah. People like the history. People like the history. Well, we can do, do you want to do Rome 1960? That's the first thing that came to my mind. Okay. Um, I would gladly reread that. It's a long one, but then that means you have like Thanksgiving reading and Christmas time reading. True. Yeah. We probably wouldn't record till January, maybe. So yeah. You can ask for it for Christmas. There you go. I might, I might try to read it a little earlier. (laughs) Christmas is crazy. (laughs) Our next book, we did a quick poll, and I'm sorry, listeners, that we were really kind of slacking on getting this up, but we'll, we'll uh, on our Twitter feed and on our Facebook group, we asked what kind of genre people were interested in, and what's winning is History of a Particular Olympics, and the book that's been jumping out to you lately, Claire, in that, that uh, genre is? Rome 1960. And I will attest, I will reread this book because I read it several years ago and it is so good. I'm so excited to read this because like Rome, really, there were a lot of game changers in Rome that are are really fascinating and a lot of really amazing athlete stories in that races and competitions that were really key to Olympic history. So it's yeah, Rome 1960 by David Moranis. And if you are unaware this is the Olympics with Cassius Clay, Wilma Rudolph, and I believe they had an, a night marathon. Yes, like in the in the with the mm-hmm. lights and yep. yeah, with a, I, I think say. a barefoot runner. 
Yep. Yes. And this is Rafer Johnson. It's Olympics. He won the decathlon and he went on to be the athlete who lit the cauldron for LA 1984. Most importantly, as Jill discovered when she went to Rome, I'll be able to just yell, Il Duce, throughout this whole thing. All right. So Rome 1960 by David Moranis. And I will buy this and I will start reading it and tweeting about it. So awesome. Yeah, get it. So we'll have we'll we'll do we'll wait a couple months. So probably early next year, in January, we will do another book club meeting. I'm super excited. All right, thank you guys. Thanks so much, Claire. We really appreciate it. I'm so glad you let us, like, told us about the story and kind of opened up my eyes to the situation in Sudan. And like, there are ways that we can continue to help. It's not over, just because the end of the the book ended. Uh, if you're curious, you can go to www.lopezlemong.com and there is a link to his For South Sudan Foundation and you can donate directly on that website. Very Excellent. Cool. Well, thank you. Right. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Claire. It was so much fun to have her back on. Uh, you can find Lopez Lemong's foundation at lopezlemong.com slash lopez-lemong-foundation.html. And the Olympic Committee, the IOC actually has um, some programs for refugees. They have the Olympic Refuge Foundation. They also, there's also a group called Olympic Solidarity that has a refugee athlete support program. And that group, the support program helps NOCs that have uh, refugees in them with uh, monetary support for uh, getting them training and getting them to international competitions. So... It was great to have Claire back on. Always good to talk to Claire. Always, always is fun. Not that I don't enjoy talking to you, but I know I, I know. like to expand <laughs> our circle. <laughs> and I know we had we had a book uh, request poll up, and I know we posted them up a little late because we've had uh, some pretty crazy weeks with our day job. But after we had taped with book club Claire and chosen our next book, which is Rome 1960, listener Brandy asked for books about more recent Olympics. And I have to say, it's really hard to find those, to be quite honest. Huh. It is. And I was looking through Amazon a little bit before we taped, and there is a book called London 2012 and the Post-Olympic City, A Hollow Legacy. And that was published in 2017. But, you know, that might not... I'm curious about what that would say, because this summer I talked with an architect friend of mine who lives in the UK, and we were talking about London 2012, and she said... Well, they're just starting to realize the effects of the legacy programs right now. So it's taken years and years for all of that post-planning to like actually be something you can see, which is very interesting. When when we were talking to Mirtha Pools, and even just two years after Rio, they're just moving the pools. Mm -hmm. So it seems like legacy stuff does take a considerable amount of time to happen. Right. Because you got to figure, you know, the Olympics end and you take a very long nap and like we did. (laughs) Yes. Right. And then you wake up and you have to shut down everything and probably close all of those books from the games. And then it's like, okay, now we have to figure out what to do. Not that now that we have to figure it out, but any legacy plans that we had put in place beforehand, we have to figure out, how to implement them now and execute them. Well, you've got to figure that the games are generally awarded 
seven years ahead of time mm-hmm. and there's at least three years. So say you've got a 10 year run up to the games. I don't think we should judge a legacy until 10 years after. Yes, I would agree with you. I think it takes that long to really go into what, you know, breaking down the games and seeing that effect. You need that that lens of history to really understand how much of an impact they had and how much of an impact they will be having. So we're looking, Brandy. I know we're reading about Rome 1960 next time. It's an excellent book, but um, we'll keep our eyes open for other ones. And and <laughs> I wonder if we have to write the books. Do you think we have to write the books? Well, I'm telling you, I don't want any more books about people who are hungry. Because when I read, because both books now have had central characters who don't get enough to eat. And when that happens, I end up eating more in sympathy. <laughs> Like if I eat more while I'm reading this book, that somehow it'll transfer into them not being hungry. So I hope nobody in Rome 1960 was hungry. That's all I'm going to say about our next book. Because I'm going to get really sad if we keep this up. (laughs) We'll find out. Well, then I guess we'll have to try the Olympic fever exercise program (laughs) to work off the effects of the book club. Yeah, the Olympic (laughs) fever diet book. (laughs) It will not involve Olympic ring jello molds. Good. Good. I got to say one more thing. I was doing a little research, pulling together information for the show about Lopez Lamont. You know, did you know that the IOC lists him on the website saying, oh, he represents the USA, but the flag associated with him is the Sudanese flag? Really? Yes. It was fascinating. So I wonder if like any other athlete, and I wondered if that was partially because he is a lost boy and has this very interesting history but i also wondered if like anybody who was a crossover or or you know went to another country to try to become an olympian if they too have different flags you know what who was that chick who your the your favorite your favorite athlete your favorite hungarian snowboarder from wasn't it like uh, eleanor or something well i thought it was emily so this is in the IOC. Yes, well, the, the mean, athlete database. I mean, you could even look at Tanith Belbin because she's Canadian. Oh, yeah. But she competed for the United States. There we go. Let's, that's and she became better. a citizen. I'm just trying to think of easy ones off the top of my head. No, she's listed as USA. Elizabeth Sweeney was her name. Oh, yeah. Well, let's try her. No, she has the Hungarian flag. <sighs> Which is very interesting. I wonder why the IOC decided to do that. Because Lopez was a naturalized citizen before he became an Olympian. I wonder if that's his choice. That's a good question. That's a very good question. You know, because is he identifying? I don't know. We'll have to look into that. Okay. On the list. On the list. Yeah. So let's move on. We have a quick... Team Olympic Fever update. I can't yell. I can whisper tofu. (laughs) My voice is going fast with the change in weather. I know, mine too. But congratulations to Josh Williamson. Our our, Our next Olympic hopeful has made it a step closer to his Olympic dream. He made the national bobsled team this past week. I'm so proud of him. But he shaved his beard. 
I'm sorry. Maybe it makes them go faster. Maybe it makes... Well, I know they have big, like, over-the-face masks, but maybe it makes that Maybe it mask... doesn't sit. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, he's still adorable. <laughs> and all my daughters and her friends are like, oh, my God, you got to interview him. He's so hot. <laughs> so, but yeah, I was like, oh, my God, now you do look like a giant 12-year-old. Yeah, but... I'm so proud of him. I'm so I happy. I know. I'm really so, excited for him. So, And other great news is our favorite sled hockey medalist and sled hockey analyst, Taylor Lipsitz's wife had another baby. So he is proud papa to two baby girls now. And they are beautiful. No, oh, Names are Mila oh. and Alina. So congratulations, Taylor. So We're happy for excited. you. Very excited. Very lovely. And then... On news for us, thank you to listener Meredith for becoming a patron. You too can patronize us. <laughs> you too can patronize us. You can patronize us every day and on Twitter <laughs> and, and Facebook so and Insta. <laughs> <laughs> but you too can support our show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Olympic Fever. Benefits start kicking in on the first of the month, so I get to send out the first round of benefits this week. I'm so excited. Now, before I knew this, I had sent a message on in our Facebook group to Meredith that I think she had earned a nickname. Mm-hmm. So now she really has earned a nickname. So I got to work on that. Okay, that's good. Yeah. And then our Tea Public store will now have more merch, not just Olympic Fever merch, but we're going to have more Olympic-themed merch from some other Tee Public designers, so check that out as well. TeePublic.com oh, slash doors slash Fever. Excellent. So, so on that note, we will wrap it up for this week. We will catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. I think we're diving in the pool again next week. I'm excited. I am excited, too. We will be talking with five-time Olympian Tony Azevedo and learning more about the sport of water polo. So come back here next week for our interview with him. And in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Fever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. So I hope nobody in Rome 1960 was hungry. That's all I'm going to say about our next book. <laughs>